Over the past 40 years, I spent 20 of those years serving on, a, uh, on four different fire departments as a volunteer, paid on call, fireman. I was uh, also a chaplain on all four of those fire departments. I would meet with firemen in crisis. I would pray before meetings. I was part of the critical incident stress management team, which we would do debriefings after tragic accidents and such. But I wasn't just a chaplain. I was also a firefighter. I had earned uh, uh, the rank, I guess, of firefighter too. I was, uh, worked on, had an aerial and motor pump operator endorsement. And uh, yeah, so I went into fires. I cut people out of cars. I unrolled and rolled up thousands and thousands of feet of hose. Um, I went into burning buildings. I drove fire trucks. Angie could never figure that out. She says, why? I'm like, why not? You know, well, come on. Um, operated aerial truck. You know, she said, why would you want to drive around in a $1.5 million truck? I said, well, it's, it's so fun. It's great. Um, but I pumped water into hoses. I helped with rescue, and I fought numerous uh, wildfires. It just uh, just got right into it. It was quite an experience. In the last church service I preached at in Prairie to Sheen, Wisconsin, most of the 35 firemen in the prairie on the Prairie to, Sh Prairie to Sheen Fire Department came to the service um, with their uniforms and their fire trucks to bid me farewell. I'll tell you what, that was an emotional, emotional uh, experience. After serving with these guys for seven years, praying with them, rubbing shoulders with them, uh, to see them in the audience um, and to be able to share the word of God with them was just a powerful thing. And some have wondered, why did you do that? Why did you take the time to do that when you had so many other things going on in your life? I said, uh, for one primary reason, to be around people who did not know Jesus. To be around people that did not know Jesus. And like Jesus in the story that we will read today, I love to be around sinners people who were missing something, those people whose lives were falling apart, had, had no idea what was missing. Uh, they just knew that there was some emptiness there. They didn't know where to even find it. And I loved that. And Angie and I would befriend these guys and their families. We'd get together when we could. We'd play cards together. When the opportunity presented itself, we would share Christ. And we'd share the, the truth and the hope found in Jesus Christ with these guys. It was being missional. It was taking Jesus Christ to our life. It was into our world. It was life on life, just being with people, serving people, uh, coming alongside people who were lost and needed a Savior. And it didn't just happen on Sundays. It was kind of a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week thing that we were just with these guys, and uh, it was pretty special. And I share this story because I learned that passion and focus from the master relationship builder himself, Jesus Christ. Every fiber in Jesus' divine body was focused on restoring a right relationship with God, for people to come into a right relationship with God. It consumed him. It is why he came. He came for you, and he came for me. And I'm not anything special. I'm just one step ahead of where most people need to be. It's been said that we are all just beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. Isn't that good? It's all beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. Jesus saved you and me, not so that we can become boastful or proud or any of these things, it's so that we could take this amazing truth that God has given, it, given us and share it with other people. And in the passage before us, we find one of the most dramatic, insightful, and comprehensive statements the Lord ever made. It gives us a full perspective of his ministry. It is the, it is the reason, the basic motivation for his incarnation. 
It is one of the most important statements ever recorded in the Bible, and it's at the end of verse 13. And the Lord said, For I came not for the righteous, but for sinners. And if you look at the Luke's version, he said, To repentance. This is the message of Christianity. This is the essence of the gospel, the reason that Jesus came to earth as a baby. This is it. It's right here. It's right before us. Why did Jesus come into the world? To call sinners. To call sinners. Those who are desperate, those who are weary, those whose lives are broken, those whose lives have been shattered, those who are lost and need to be saved. Sinners. Sinners who need to be saved. Those who know that they're sinners and need to be saved. Jesus came not to call people who think they're righteous or think that they're good, but sinners. Peter said it so well. Depart from me, O Lord, I am a sinful man. And Peter in 1 Timothy said, he summed it up so well. He said, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to what? Save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Now, this is the point of the passage. Jesus has come to call sinners. <laughs> Aren't you glad about that? Doesn't that excite you that God came for you and me to save us, to give us hope, give us a life? People don't come to Christ for a solution unless they understand that they have a problem. They don't come for healing unless they know they have a disease. They don't come for life unless they know that they're spiritually dead without him. Now, this sheds a whole new light on the topic of evangelism for me, because when I think of evangelism, I don't know what comes to your mind. I don't know, you think of the guy down at the corner with the Bible waving a sign or anything, or do you think of Billy Graham or Greg Lowry or some of these people that are out there uh, doing these evangelistic rallies and stuff? Is that what comes to your mind when you think of evangelism? Or do you somehow think that, wait, what's my involvement in this whole thing? How do I fit into this? Is it just the pastors that do that? You know, I grew up in an age where they had something called evangelism explosion. And uh, I don't know how many are familiar with that, but it's this long outline of things that you kind of memorize. And uh, when you get into a conversation, you kind of say, oh, it goes this direction, I say this. My friends, it's far more organic than that. It's just, it's just living life with people. Uh, it's just living life with people and waiting for them to recognize that they need a savior. Uh, I know of a couple that moved to Chicagoland area. They moved into the high rises. And they did for one primary reason, because they wanted to be around white-collar workers. They wanted to be with them, and they befriended them and had them over, and they got talking, and they just waited for their life to fall apart. And it did, and they were there for them. You know, it was just they set the stage to have a conversation. So my big idea this morning is we are the hands and feet and voice of Jesus Christ on this earth to bring the good news of the gospel to people who are seek it, who will seek it, who are seeking it. You can't force feed the gospel on anyone. They must want it. And you can't lead someone to safety unless, of course, they know that they're lost. And so Jesus came to call the righteous, not sinners. Now, if we truly believe that that's why Jesus came, then we can be confident that he's going to use us in that capacity. He's going to use us in our world and the things that we're doing and the people that we have contact to get that word out. Isaiah 53, 6 says it this way, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Came across a video this week that is absolutely hilarious, and I'm going to show it to you, but it's so descriptive of this verse. All we like sheep have gone astray. So go ahead and play this video. And this is me, all right? This is... All right.
с этой стороны, против солнца. That is something I would do, all right? In slow motion. Just in case you missed it. All right, so there we go. I mean, we are all like sheep. We are, we are like sheep. We think, you know, we do our best. We do our best. And when we left to ourselves, we're going to end up back in the ditch. Um, a shepherd left the 99 for that one lost sheep. And for my friends, I was that one lost sheep. And you were that one lost sheep. So that brings us to Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 17. Matthew calls, or Jesus calls Matthew as the tax collector. So verses 9 through 13 deals with the call of Matthew, also known as Levi. And most of us know Matthew is the author of the book of Matthew that we've been studying the last few months. Matthew is an eyewitness to the, uh, to the life of Christ. And verse 9 reads, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. Now, Matthew was a tax collector, and most of us have a little bit of an understanding of a tax collector. He was a Jew that had sold out to the Roman government um, to, ta you know, to tax the people, to collect taxes for Rome. But he also took, they also took a lot of money to line their own pockets with it. And uh, Matthew was categorically the most hated person in Capernaum. Matthew was, uh, he was a tax collector. He was so hated and distrusted. Uh, tax collectors in general couldn't even uh, be a witness in a trial because they were so corrupt. And so they didn't even allow their testimony. They were considered kind of on the same level as a pig and a murderer and a uh, thief. That's kind of where they were ranking. Matthew was a crook. He knew it. The Romans knew it. Everyone knew it. And uh, here he was. He was protected by Rome and he could do whatever he wanted. Now, there's two types of tax collectors you may not be aware of. The first one, the category one, is a goodbye uh, tax collector in Hebrew. It's called goodbye, and, uh, or goodbye. And they were uh, the general tax collectors. They were the ones that kind of took this regular tax. So if you want to remember that name, just think of every time you get to tax season and you watch your money go out the door, you can say goodbye. So that's kind of what happens there. So, but they collected regular taxes, and they were, there's three of them. First of all, they collected property taxes, one-tenth of your grain, one-fifth of your fruit or wine. And there was the income tax, which was 1% of the money that you earned. And then there was the poll tax. So if you were alive, you got taxed for being alive. If you're dead, you got passed up on that one. So, and then the tax collectors would kind of add a surcharge to kind of cover uh, whatever fortune they wanted to have. But that, there's another kind of tax collector. Uh, his duty was to collect duty on everything, the collect duty. And the category num, this, this guy's name was the Mocus. Um, well, M-O-K-H-E-S, Mocus. And he, uh, he was able to collect taxes on imports and exports and anything bought, anything sold, every road, every bridge, every harbor, every town, everything he could collect tax on. Um, they could invent a tax if they wanted to. They, uh, if you had, uh, they could tax you on the number of axles you had on your cart. So if you had... Two, two axles, you got paid double. They could tax you on the clothes that you were wearing, um, the road that you just traveled, the number of legs on your donkey. So if your donkey had three legs, it was cheaper. So there was, a, there was some break there. But they, they would sit at the crossroads and collect these taxes, and that was Matthew. That's where Matthew was, at the crossroads, where he was sitting. And so the goodbye tax collector, no, he was hated. Oh, they hated the, the goodbye tax collector. But the mocus tax collector, oh boy, he was despised. 
They, they just absolutely despised those guys. So Matthew was a Mocha's tax collector. He set up his strategic point on the road from Damascus. He probably taxed everyone that was going east and west. He had the, the most wealthy franchise out there, and uh, he just loved it. Well, I don't know that he loved it. In fact, I think he didn't like it at all. I think that after a while, it really got to him. You think Matthew was happy? I don't think so. I don't think he was happy at all because, you know, Matthew was looking for a way out, and when Jesus provided it, he jumped at it. He never looked back. When Jesus said, follow me, he did. Matthew was a man under conviction, and Matthew was a man who wanted forgiveness with all of his heart. Matthew knew the life-saving message from Jesus because he heard it. People were talking about Jesus and all about Jesus, and the present religious system told him that he could never measure up. He could never have it. His betrayal and his sin was too great. And so why did Jesus approach Matthew? Because Jesus came not for the righteous, but for sinners. Luke's account of Matthew's conversion states that Matthew left everything. He got, he got up and he left. In other words, he got, when he got out of his seat, there was absolutely no turning back. There was nothing in the text that it would indicate any kind of hesitation on his part. And unlike fishing, he couldn't go back to tax collecting. The Romans would fill his spot in a second. So in this first verse is the heart. This first verse is the heart of the gospel. Jesus is saying to everyone here today, follow me. Follow me. Set aside your past. Set aside your dreams that you might have. All those things you thought would provide fulfillment and joy, set them aside and follow me. Everything you thought would bring you happiness, let it go and follow me. There's even Christians who have received Jesus Christ and they're still kind of, they're still clinging to their past and the things of their past and the things they are hoping for that are completely out of God's will. And they're just hoping that this will somehow provide some kind of excitement in their life and fulfillment. Jesus is saying to them as well, to you as well, if you're in that category, follow me. Matthew gladly unloaded his past and he turned to Jesus Christ. Matthew lost a career and he gained a destiny. He lost a in good income and he found honor. He lost his security and gained an undreamed adventure. He lost material things and gained a spiritual fortune. Let's move on to verse 10. As Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and they were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well do not need a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Well, you see, Matthew was so overjoyed, he was so overwhelmed with this, this opportunity to follow Christ and, and this new life that he was given, um, he's had a banquet. We don't know the time frame here, it's not really given, but sometime after Matthew followed Jesus, he pulled this uh, banquet together with his friends. And this banquet was attended by mo the most rotten people in the history of banquets. Uh, people, be, you know, because they're the only people that Matthew knew. These rotten, crummy, repulsive, disgusting, sinful people showed up at his banquet. Those were his buddies, his friends. And because no one else would come, you know, come near to him, they despised him. And Jesus was a guest of honor at this banquet. And when we get to heaven, I'm going to play that over and over. I want to see that clip where Jesus is sitting with all these sinners, and the Pharisees are off to the side saying, oh, that is so disgusting. So anyway, but that happened, and Jesus was loving it. 
He was absolutely loving it. When the Pharisees, they were just totally blown away by this, asking, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? All the worst people. This whole thing was devastating to the Jewish system of self-righteousness. Religious people did not hang out with the riffraff. It just didn't happen, but Jesus did. And, and they, they must have thought, if he's really God, why doesn't he want to have dinner with us? Um, these Pharisees were prideful, and they had missed the, ma- the mark completely by a mile. I ran into a similar situation a few years ago when I was pastoring a church in northern Wisconsin. And uh, it was a smaller community, but I got into the community. I got to know some of the people, and, and uh, some of the people started coming to the church. And, and it was exciting for me to see these new people coming from the church that I, I'm sure did not know Christ, but they were coming and uh, it was exciting. And um, on one particular Sunday, a lady approached uh, Angie and said, that man over there is sitting in my seat. And she says, isn't that great? Isn't that exciting? She says, no, I'm really serious. He's sitting in my seat. I mean, true story. I mean, it really happened. It's like, seriously, this is what you guys have come down to? Is that people in the community, yeah, they were a little rough around the edges. Maybe swear a little, you know, a swear bomb here and there and smelled like alcohol or something, but they were coming to the church. And the people of the church were not ready for that. They were not excited about these people coming to the church. And I had a friend named Wayne that I'd gotten to know. He was a farmer, hardworking guy, just a hard, one of the hardest working guys I know. And uh, Wayne was rough around the edges. He was an alcoholic. Um, he was running from God as fast as he could, but he came to church. And he came to church a few times, and then he stopped coming. Because the people of the church did not, Wayne didn't fit into anyone's religious box. And uh, that was pretty sad. He didn't understand it. I conversed with him. He said, I don't understand what's going on at your church there. But these people don't like me. Pretty sad. I want to tell you another story about a a guy named Mark. Mark was was in my uh, youth group when I was a youth pastor years and years ago. Mark was a, uh, first time I remember Mark, he came up the stairs uh, of the youth room, his hand, he had two cans of Mountain Dew, and he, one can in each hand, and he had fire in his eyes, and that was Mark. Mark was just a wild, wild kid. He came from a broken home. His dad was in, into a ton of things that he was, you know, that he was exposed to. Mark was, uh, was a challenge, to say the least. But the youth group, I'll tell you what, this youth group loved him. They accepted him. They embraced him, even though Mark was Mark, and he was a difficult kid to get along, to get along with. And I remember, forget, never forget the week that we had scheduled a, uh, a conference with a speaker. His name is Pat Hurley. Some of you might have heard of him, but um, we hired him to come in, and he did a daytime assembly at the high school, local high school, and then he invited everyone to come back at night uh, to do a, an assembly. Um, he's going to talk on why guys are so weird and girls are so strange or something like that, but 500 kids, 500 students showed up for that evening rally. And we kind of advertised it as pizza with, uh, pizza with Pat. And he did his thing, and everyone laughed. And at the end of his, uh, his presentation, he shared Christ. And 75 students came down uh, to receive Christ that day. And Mark, <laughs> Mark was one of them. <laughs> and his life started to change. Mark is a pastor right now in Chicago. Um, you would have, I would have never thought of that when I first saw him walking up those stairs. Mark was rough, really rough, but God took him. 
and grabbed onto him and changed his life completely. So why would I spend so much time with a Mark and a Wayne and others? Because Jesus came not for the righteous, but for sinners, like Mark and Wayne, like you and like me. The story is told of a man who left his house one Sunday to go, uh, and his neighbor was loading up his golf clubs uh, into the back of his car, and neighbor yells over, hey, Henry, why don't you go golfing with me? And uh, Henry responds, well, no, I got to go to church. I always go to church when the doors are open. And, you know, the gentleman said, well, okay. You know, I thought a lot about your church. Um, I've been kind of wondering what's going on there. Uh, I've asked you to golf with me about seven or eight times, but you've never asked me to come to church. What's up with that? Kind of a sobering story, isn't it? So instead of seeing the church and the religion as a refuge for sinners, these Pharisees and religious rulers had placed a set of rules on the door that kept the very people that needed it the most out. The Pharisees thought that Jesus shouldn't hang out with these messed up people, but that's not the way that Jesus operated. Why? Because he came for sinners. Matthew 11:19 states that Jesus was the friend of tax collectors and the friend of sinners. It was a badge of honor he wore proudly. Jesus knew the right way to fellowship with people outside the faith, and we don't have to wonder about that, how he did that. He knew the right way. I remember years ago when I was in aircraft mechanic school, um, going to school with a lot of guys. A lot of these guys were on the GI Bill, and, and again, they were just kind of a rough group of guys. I loved it, though. And uh, after school, these guys would go to the local bar, and they'd have a beer, and they'd ask, they'd ask me along, and I'd go with them. So I'd be sitting in a, in a bar, um, drinking my Coke, and they'd be drinking their beer, and we had some good talks about Jesus. Now some might think, well, that's, uh, that's, they shouldn't be there, but I tell you what, that's where God led me, and that's where I hung out, because that's where they were, and uh, I had a good opportunity to share, some, share Christ with some of these guys. I don't know where they are today, but God knows. And Jesus looked for opportunities to hang out with sinners. Why? Because he came not for the righteous, but for sinners. How many friends do we have outside of this church family? Sometimes we avoid people who need the help the most. Some are quick to criticize people out the church, outside the church. My friend, uh, they don't need our criticism. They need our help. Uh, they don't need uh, to be kept at a distance. They need our mercy, and they need love. Look at verse 12. Look at the, the word picture that Jesus presents here. He says, and when they heard this, he said to them, those who are well don't need a physician, but those who are sick. Well, the analogy is pretty simple. A physician is expected to go to sick people. Sick people, right? Uh, it's the same way a forgiver should be expected to go to the unforgiven. Jesus' defense is simple. He went to the people who needed, who had the, the greatest need. And Jesus says, turns this argument back on these Pharisees. He says, uh, you are the ones that say the, that they are the sickest. <laughs> he says, you call them sinners. You have said rightly that these people are sinners, yet they are the ones that need the help the most. Are you getting this, guys? The Pharisees were blinded to their own legalistic and graceless perspective. And they so freely defined these people that were hanging out with Jesus as sinners, but they were completely indifferent to them. They were blinded to the obvious hypocrisy that they displayed. And Jesus asked, where is your mercy? Look at verse, uh, verse 13. He said, 
Where is it? Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Hosea 6, 6 states, um, God says, I don't want your sacrifices. I want your love. I don't want your offerings. I want you to know me. Jesus says, go and reread your Bibles, guys. You've clearly missed something here. Where is your mercy? Where is your compassion? Where is your love? Where is your care? You've made a correct diagnosis. These people are sin sick. They need help. Now carry that to its natural conclusion. You stop short of a solution. These people need your help, not your judgment. He says, I've not come for the religious and the self-righteous people. I've come for these guys, these sinners. And Jesus is saying, I've come to invite people who are desperate and aware of their sin and their need of a savior. John MacArthur said the scribes and Pharisees would have been lousy doctors because they were more concerned with their own preservation of their holiness than with helping someone else. And what they were doing it would be on the same plane of a doctor saying, oh, yeah, you know, I'll come over and, and I'll cure you, but eh, I don't know about that. Maybe I won't, because if I do that, I might get your sickness. Um, who wants a doctor like that? I mean, really? And I will certainly, yeah, I'll certainly give you a, doc, a diagnosis, but I don't know, I don't know I'm going to bother with a cure. I mean, that's what's going on here. The message in verse 13 is so crystal clear at the end. Jesus came for sinners. And until you know that you're a sinner, the Lord has nothing to offer you. Matthew, he knew it. He got up and he followed Jesus. And the rest is a glorious history, isn't it? Matthew became a saint of God who penned this incredible gospel. Jesus received sinners. Luke uh, 19.10, where the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The lost. Let's move on to verse 14. Verse 14 states, And the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Well, it's apparent there's, there were some followers of John the Baptist who were running around loose out there that didn't know much about Christ or didn't want to know anything about him. And uh, they were devout Jews who were connected to the, tightly to the Judaism and kind of, you know, uh, in the same category with these Pharisees. And they were trying to teach the Old Testament law but messing that up big time. They had all sorts of knowledge, but they lacked the grace and the mercy that was needed for them. And these were the, one, these were the ones that came to Jesus and why do you... Why do we and the Pharisees fast, you know, to compare yourself with those guys, but your disciples do not fast? Why is that? And the Pharisees, the Pharisees believe that you should fast twice a week, which is interesting because the only requirement for fasting um, was the Day of Atonement, the Yom Kippur. That was it. That was the only fast prescribed in the entire Old Testament. All the other fasts were voluntary, but they had made something out of this. But these guys had built their rituals and their routines around things that were not prescribed in the Old Testament writings. So in a nutshell, these guys are asking, why, why do we fast and you don't? I don't get that. In other words, what they're really saying is, how come your religion is so different than ours? How come your religion is so different than ours? And the Pharisees had built their religion around three expressions, giving of tithes, fasting, and prayer. That's, that was their whole religion based on those couple, those three things. And they'd walk around with these long faces, and they would pray, pray and fast. It was just depressing. It's, it's a, you know, not much of a selling point, you know. Come and join our religion. You could be sad like us, you know. This is not a, not a real, you know, potent, uh, uh, you know, tagline or anything. But that's where they were, and they displayed their rituals for all the world to see. It was a show it was religion with no relationship. It was hollow. It was fake. 
And so they, expe they, uh, they expected everyone else to follow their example. Well, Jesus was the antithesis of this false religion. He was the complete opposite of what they were doing. And so the disciples of John asked, how come your system is so different? How come it's so different? You, you don't do what we do. And I love Jesus' response. It's so good. Verse 15, and Jesus said to them, can a wedding guest mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? And the day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Now, Jesus is saying, my presence is like a wedding. It's, it's like a wedding. It's a celebration. It's happy. It's, a, it's exciting. Uh, you wouldn't see a wedding guest walking around with long faces during a wedding celebration unless you were the guy or gal that got passed up here. So it just wouldn't happen. And so Jesus is saying, you know, about your religion, your, rit your, ritual, your rituals are out of sync with reality. They're out of sync. You crank out these routines irrespective of what God is doing in your midst. Open your eyes, guys. What's in front of you? In other words, there's no connection between what is happening before you and your man-made rituals. They were missing the obvious. Emmanuel, God is with you. Do you guys get this? And look at verse 15. The day will come when the bridegroom will be taken away and they will, they will fast. Jesus said, I'm the bridegroom. I'm here. I'm here. It's a time to celebrate, not walk around with, with a long face like you just ate a, a sour warhead or some kind of a fizz bomb or something like that. No, I'm here. I, this is exciting. The day he's talking about in this verse is the day of his crucifixion and his eventual ascension where he was taken back into heaven. So Jesus is saying, this is about a relationship, guys. This is about a relationship. This is not a religion. When I when I do funerals, I usually end with saying, you know, I'm not here to promote a religion. I'm here to promote a relationship. I want to talk to you about Jesus. And this is not a slam on fasting either. Fasting is, can be a really good thing. It's just taking time that you'd normally eat a meal and just setting that, side aside, uh, that time aside and just focusing on, on Scripture and prayer. I mean, fasting is a good thing. This isn't, this isn't a slam on fasting in any way, but it's just saying, you know, these guys had built a religion around all these, these external things, this man-made stuff. And Jesus is so against that. He's just so opposite of that. It's so clear. That becomes so clear as we look at these two uh, parables that illustrate what he's talking about, these, about here. These parables here teach us the incompatibility of the old system, the Judaism, and, and uh, these man-made laws, and the new system, Christianity and grace. Look at verse 16. No one puts a piece of unsunk cloth on an old garment for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. Now, in those days, they didn't poly, had polyester and all this stuff. They had wool and they have cotton. And uh, that's what they made everything out of. And everyone knew back then you couldn't take a, a new patch and put it on an old garment because it only take one wash cycle and that garment would pull, but, you know, that, that uh, new patch would shrink and pull out, you know, the stitching, and you'd have a bigger hole than you started with. That's what they were talking about. So the question is here, what do the patch and the old garment symbolize? Well, the old garment represents Judaism. Now, that's different than Old Testament teaching. You've got to make sure you understand that. That's Judaism. All these man-made rules and regulations that they were to follow to the letter, this kind of to achieve this uh, self-righteousness. It was all man-made, and the patch of unshrunken cloth represented the new way that Jesus was bringing forth, the new covenant of faith and grace. And what Jesus is saying, there's, saying here is, there's just no way that what I can teach is going to fit into your system. 
It isn't going to work. There's just no way. There's no way that the message that I am giving of grace and sincere repentance can ever fit into the ritualistic and legalistic system that you hold. There's no way. It's, it's, it's not going to connect. It's not going to stay connected. It is completely incompatible. At all. There is just no place for a new patch on an old garment. Jesus came to introduce something new, <coughs> not to patch something old. Jesus explains that he did not come to repair or to reform the old institutions of Judaism, but to uh, put in place a brand new covenant altogether. <coughs> so it's important that the old garment to which, uh, to which Jesus alludes to is neither the Mosaic Law, it's not the Mosaic Law, it's, it's not the Old Testament, it's some man-made Judaism that they'd come up with, and it was just full of rules. Legalistic things, you know, like uh, on the Sabbath, you, you know, you couldn't help your 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 deer, your donkey or whatever out of a hole, you know, and certain things that all these regulations that they just added to God's word, terrible. But that's what he's addressing here. And these these Jewish leaders had added their own set of rules and ritual, uh, rituals and traditions to um, God's law, and there was no resemblance to the original, none. So Jesus didn't come to destroy the law. He came to fulfill it. He says that here. Jesus himself declares, yeah, I didn't come to abolish the law of the prophets. I didn't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus didn't come with a message to patch up this, this man-made legalistic system. He came to replace it, to totally replace it. He didn't come to just fix a broken system made by man. He came to give it a new life, uh, it, was, it was the complete fulfillment of Old Testament teaching. That's what we have here. Look at verse 17. Neither is new wine put into wineskins. If it is, the, wine, uh, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But the new wine is put into fresh wineskins, so both are preserved. The second illustration is a little foreign to us, uh, but it made perfect sense to the people back then because when wa wine was uh, produced, it was put into wineskins, animal wineskins, or animal skins, and um, what happened here is that uh, as wine is put into these skins, as it matures, as it ferments, it starts to grow. It expands, okay? It expands. And as it expands, it stretches, the, you know, the, uh, the, the, the skins. And so it, over a period of time, the, uh, the skins lose their elasticity, and, uh, you know, that's what happened. They're kind of a one-use, kind of a one-use item, unless you put old wine into old skins, but mostly you didn't do that. So, but if you put new wine into old skins that have already been stretched out, you see what the problem is. It's going to crack. It's going to break. It's going to, you know, you're going to lose the new wine because you put it into old skins. And so Jesus wants us to understand that the Jewish laws and the regulations in this passage that we're looking at today were incompatible. They were just incompatible with the gospel of grace. The gospel of grace could not be contained in these ritualistic system that they had created. The old wineskins represents legalistic Judaism, which includes all the added rules, all the added regulations that are out there. The new wine represents the essence of Christianity and grace and how to approach God. And the po point that Jesus is bringing is that brought, he's bringing a newness to the life. He's, he's not to be confined. The newness that he brought couldn't be confined in the legalistic system that was there. So there we go. It's a new way. It's a, it's a, it's a, he says, I'm the groom. I'm the Messiah. I'm God. I'm here. I brought something new. And he uh, 
which he wants to, you know, that's the foundation, which what you started back then. So as we wrap things up today, I want to share with you a couple things. One is that, uh, talk about a story about a guy that was in a hospital bed, and um, he was sitting there, and he knocked over the water cup that was next to his bed. And so that water spilled on the floor, and he called the nurse's aide, and the nurse's aide came in and looked at it, and she, and she called uh, housekeeping. And, then, and so housekeeping came, and, and the nurse's aide was there, and they're looking at the spill, and the nurse's aide says, well, that spill is, and what, what he didn't realize, there was, a, there was kind of this system. If the spill was small enough, the nurse's aide could take care of it. If it was a big spill, the housekeeping had to take care of it. So they're looking at the spill, and they're arguing back and forth whether it's too small or too big, and they're fighting on who's going who's gonna to clean up that mess. And so after a while, the guy says, forget this. He took the pitcher of water, poured it on the floor. He says, I hope this helps you guys out in trying to determine who's going to clean up this mess. Let's just get this done. And so the question is, who's responsible? Who's responsible here? Now, we live in a world where there's a lot of people that have heard about the, you know, Jesus Christ. They come on Christmas. They come on Easter. Um, many of them don't know the life-changing truth that Jesus offers. And some even go to church on a regular basis, but they still haven't heard about God, what God's done to them, or they haven't understood it. So who? Who? Who is responsible to tell them? Who's responsible to get that word out? Is it Greg Laurie? Is it Billy Graham, Franklin Graham, Louis Palau? Who, who's responsible? Is it Christian radio? Is it the people with the gift of evangelism that are supposed to do this? Is it, um, or do we? Do we have some responsibility in this? And I would suggest that we actually do. Absolutely have some responsibility in getting that life-changing message out to people that need it the most. And Paul in uh, Colossians 1.25 states, he says, I've come, uh, I have become its servant by the, commission, uh, by, by the commission God gave me to present you the word of God in its fullness. And so Paul is saying, I, I'm, I'm cooperating with Jesus Christ. I'm cooperating with what God's doing. And together we are getting this message out. Now commission in Greek means uh, oikonoma which is kind of like house plus law. It's kind of a compound term that means oikos, which is house, and nomos, which is law. And the, you know, the meaning behind this is God has given you an official responsibility, uh, uh, an assignment, all of us in, in Christ, assignment to get the word out. We are partners with God to co in that mission. Uh, God's mission is to, is to get the word out. Uh, we are it is our mission. God's mission is, becomes our mission. And in a nutshell, what this means is that on the average, each of us have 10 or 8 to 10, 15, or 8 to 15 people whom God has supernaturally placed in our circle and has given us the opportunity to minister to that circle. Does that take the pressure off of evangelism? Okay, absolutely. Yeah, you got to evangelize. But when I know that God has strategically placed me in this, the word is actually oikos, it's extended family, which means that God has placed people in your life that don't know Christ and has given you responsibility to cooperate with him to reach that group. Now, there's people in your life that I'll never have a conversation with, ever. And there's people in my life that you'll never have a conversation with. Those, guys, those 35 guys in the uh, fire department, there was hardly anyone in the church that knew them. But that was my oikos. That was my group of people, 
my extended family to share Christ. And each of us have been given this oikos, this extended family, people in your life that he's already put there. You already have a relationship with them. And all you have to do is wait for the opportunity that God will provide to share Christ. It is so simple. Evangelism is that simple. It's to believe that God has placed people in your life that you can share with. You don't have to go on the street corner. If that's your gift, do it. But God has already placed a group of people in your life that you can minister to. Isn't that exciting? To me, that's very exciting. It, it takes all the pressure off of evangelism to know that God is orchestrating this. He's, he's working this out. He's provided this oikos in each of our life, this extended family. For me, it's my neighbor Kim and, and, and uh, Keith across the street and, and my Mormon friends uh, on this, this side. And these are, this is my oikos. These are the people in my life that I'm praying for and, and ministering to as God provides those opportunities. We each have that. We each had that. So what, you know, the question, what is God doing? Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And the second point as we wrap things up, God is doing a new thing. He is. He's doing a new thing. Like the Pharisees, we sometimes get attached to the, um, to the new, we, we sometimes try to attach the new things that God is doing to old traditions in our life. We do that. We do with our, with our family. Sometimes we do it at work. We do it in our church. Uh, you know, we take the things that, the old things that God has, has used in the past that perhaps have been really effective, and we sometimes try to attach it to the new things that God is doing. Now, we understand without a doubt that God's message is, is secure, that doesn't change. His message is, is, you know, transcends all cultures, all time. It, but methods... Methods need to change from, from time to time. And uh, sometimes uh, if something worked 20 years ago, we assume it will work now and into eternity. God is doing a new thing. We have to believe that. We, and we would do well to write our plans in pencil and give God the eraser and just let him go at it. Because some of the things that we plan, some of the things that we set out to do, they just don't work. They don't work in our context and where we are here. My ministry here in Idaho is different than my ministry back in Wisconsin. It's a different culture. There's things that I needed to learn about this culture to understand to minister more effectively here than back in Wisconsin. And that's kind of, that's what I'm talking about here. It's not about changing the message. It's just about looking at your culture and saying, what's different here? I want to share you a couple, a couple pictures. I went to a WANA conference, first one here. Um, you can go ahead and put that up there. This is a map of the world, 1570. You know, I'm impressed, okay? Aren't you? 1570, no satellites, nothing. I mean, this, is, this isn't bad, you know, for coming up with a map of the world that's dated back to 1570. And I went to Sawana conference, and what came out of this conference is the, the CEO says, we are taking, we're looking at Awana and trying to make it a make it work for our culture. We basically, we were kind of backing up and say we're trying to take all the, all of, all of things that we've learned about Awana and try to fit it into the old map. He said, we got to stop doing that because we've got to move from just simply Bible memorization to discipleship. And that's the whole thrust now of Awana. They're like, yes, Bible memory is good. It's great, but we need to be more involved in discipling students. 
Disciple him so that when they do graduate from high school, when they do graduate from these programs, it's not just a bunch of verses that they've learned. It's a, they've connected with people. They've connected with God. It's, it's a relationship. And what they found out that they were doing is they're taking the culture and, and where everything was, and they were trying to stick it into this old map, and it wasn't working. And they said, we need a new map. And so we see the new map of the, of the world. There's a new map. That's accurate. That's where things are at. And we use the, mo the if, we, if we try to use the old map to navigate today, it's not going to be useful because the information is outdated in some cases. And it, and it does not give us a full picture. We need a new map, and this is the new map. So what does it take to navigate in our current situation? The world is changing, and we need to be up to date on what's going on. Our message, again, remains the same, but sometimes we have to change our methods. We have to look at everything, put it on the table, and say, Lord, I'll only pick up the things you want me to pick up because you're doing a new thing today. And sometimes we're tempted to take the new things that God is doing and tries to impose them on an old map, and it doesn't work. We have more information now than we ever have. Uh, the Internet, we're connecting with people in ways we could only dream of years ago. Technology is changing. People are changing. They're getting busier. Life is so much more complicated today. It's just... Life, the culture is changing. The economy is changing. Everything around us is changing. And if we try to do ministry using old map, our effectiveness is going to be diminished considerably. So we look at where God's at. And we say, God, what do we need to pick up? What do we need to leave there? And it might be that we need to, instead of trying to patch things up, um, well, using the old, you know, we need, might need to, to use the new things. And sometimes God says, yeah, you, that worked. Keep going with that. This didn't work. You know, change that. The point is, Jesus has come, and it's a time to celebrate because the new way is here, and the groom is here. Jesus, the King, is here. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Gracious Father, thank you so much for your word. It is so relevant for today. Um, I know in its context, it's written to a group of people in the first century, but boy, when we read this stuff, it's just right there. We need to follow you. There may be other people here today that haven't followed you, that they're kind of wondering what this Christianity thing is all about. Pray that you impress upon them. It's pretty simple. It's just realizing that you're a sinner, that you need a Savior, asking for forgiveness from you to save us and to forgive us of our sins. It is that simple. A heart that is truly, sincerely praying those things to be saved eternally. We thank you for that. We finally thank you for the hope. Help us to give a perspective. Help us not to try to impose our culture on old maps, but to look at where you're working, what you're doing, what you're doing new, and apply that to our life today. Thank you that you are relevant. Thank you that everything that you share is so, is so right on, and that we can read this passage and make it work for us today. Thank you so much for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.